This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today has what you could describe as a varied career. She first came to prominence in the 80s for her comedy, as one of the cast of Girls on Top, and later script editor for Absolutely Fabulous. Then her interviews, which included memorable encounters with Madonna, Fergie and Donald Trump. These days she's best known for her work on mental health and mindfulness, the latter of which she has a master's in from Oxford University. News of her experiences with mental health first arrived in the 90s when she fronted a comic relief campaign with posters of her that read, One in five people have dandruff, one in four people have mental health problems, I've had both. With Brits currently stuck at home indefinitely, she has returned to the fore with the frazzled forums for those who need someone to talk to during their self-isolation. My guest today is Ruby Wax. Thank you for joining me today, Ruby. Well, you're joining me remotely, but before we begin, I think we should probably point out in terms of disclaimer that we do know each other pretty well. Had it not been for coronavirus, in about a week's time, you would be my mother-in-law. People are going to think, like, this is handy camera. <laughs> But that is on hold because just cannot get married these days. So instead, I've roped you into being a guest on my podcast. That's second best. And how do you know I don't like that better? Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll see if the wedding even happens at this rate. So, so fingers crossed. So on this podcast, we like to begin by rewinding the hands of time to what you were doing in your early life your childhood and this is obviously a slightly stranger experience because I know some of this stuff already but you were born and raised in Illinois your parents were Jews who left Austria over the Nazi threat one of the things that we often ask people on this podcast was there's a happy childhood but you've spoken quite a lot about the difficulties you had growing up so how would you describe your childhood I don't think there's words to describe my childhood I was just writing about it that I was watching or when I read Philip Roth or Jonathan Franzen about dysfunctional families, compared to mine, those are sitcoms. I mean, my parents were so wild and original. Everything out of their mouths I wrote down, and I didn't even have to edit it. So I used them. Well, I have a book coming out called How Do You Want Me? It's republished. Those are the lines I wrote down from my parents straight onto the page. And just so you know how dark it is, Carrie Fisher edited for me, and she said, this is almost as bad as my family. Now, you can't get a better review from somebody whose father was a heroin addict and mother was a movie star who used to get so drunk that she didn't know where the loo was. But anyway, it's as dark as it gets. And I once wrote a line. Oh, oh, no, I did a documentary about my parents, and it took place in Miami Beach. And there was a scene where my mother was on all fours behind me with carrying two sponges, she was on all fours. And she always wanted me to take a shower outside of the building, which makes sense. And then I'd get into the apartment and I had come from the beach. This is with a camera crew. She threw herself on the floor. It's shag pile carpet, did I mention that? And she follows me across with the sponges, rubbing the shag pile, and she says this line, civilized people, I don't know if you're son, it's much louder. Civilized people, don't bring sand in a building. And I just want to name drop again. My girlfriend worked for Martin Scorsese, and I got to meet him once, and I was so nervous. I was so nervous. And he turned to me, and he said, civilized people don't bring sand in a building. 
because my girlfriend had shown him the um, film of my parents and he said it was the most frightening scene he'd ever seen. So I just want to give you where, how crazy they were. And do you want me to tell you the broom story or is there more interview? We'll go for the broom story. We'll take it. Okay. The broom story is, this is just normal. This isn't exceptional. My mom always had these obsessions. She'd have a fix and she couldn't get her eyes off of it. So one day, one year she came to England and she said, have you got a broom? Broom was her theme. And so for every day, 10 days, she'd go, where are you getting the broom? Is the broom coming? And when you get the broom, here's how you sweep. Clockwise. Two weeks, she's here. 10 days, two weeks. She goes to Chicago. She calls me immediately and says, did you get the broom? So I said, I'm working on it. You know, I was just yanking her chain. She said, oh, your aunt died yesterday. Where's the broom? So I said, wait, wait, did you just say my aunt died yesterday? And she said, okay, back the clock up 24 hours. She's not dead. Now, when are you getting the broom? Did you get the broom? Never. Now, when it comes to other family, you appeared on Who Do You Think You Are? And you looked into your ancestry. Did that make you feel more connected with your family? Well, when you see the reality of why they were the way they were, you know, you for, you, it's not, I hate the word forgive, but I understand and I like who they were when they were young. We wouldn't have been friends because my mom was really beautiful and a snob, you know, was really smart in school. She wouldn't have liked me. Looked like Greta Garbo. And my dad was like a kind of a, you know, a macho type. But I can see what they were going for. And I can see that probably because she graduated and she spoke six languages. Then they had to run away, you know, from their neighborhood, you know, because they had an allergy to death, probably. And they came to America. And that must have been so traumatizing that probably that's what flipped them. So I understand. I didn't get it. I know they came from the war, but they never said anything. You know, and I say in the documentary, if she had mentioned one line about what happened, and it's horrific, you know, what happened to the rest of my family? I said, didn't I have relatives? She said, no, never. You never had relatives. And then you find out you did. It turns the tables. Now, going back to your childhood, did you have any early career ambitions? I wanted to be a fireman and then a squirrel. And both of them sadly didn't come to fruition. Oh, a mermaid. That didn't happen. You said previously that you discovered comedy at 16 as a way to get boys. How did that work out for you? Well, I was a a very unattractive child. My front teeth didn't actually come back into my mouth until much later. And people would call me tusks. Imagine. Anyway, so I didn't get a lot of guys. And I was kind of a creep. That Radiohead song really means a lot to me, but I was that. And then I must have overnight said something funny and I could see all the beautiful boys turn around. And so I honed it. And I always say, I went from like an ugly duckling to Joan Rivers in one night. And then I got the boys. But I mean, it didn't last long because they ended up homosexuals, but they were beautiful. Now, you started a degree in psychology in California, which is interesting because it seems closer, you've had a very varied career, as you've mentioned, but it seems closer to what you are doing now. Yeah. But you you didn't stick with it. So what happened when you went to university? Well, I was sort of a rebel and I wanted to bring America to its knees and that didn't work out for me. And I always said, you know, if you guys really want to futz with the system, you know, it was during the time of the Vietnam War. I said, if you really want to, you know, get your point across in America, burn your credit cards. But of course, none of the kids did. And I realized they don't walk the talk. So I left. I had to drop the psychology, but I was always a narcissist, even though I was an unattractive child, thus dressing up as a squirrel. 
and I decided I would go to the Royal Shakespeare Company based on nothing. I worked in my room, in my bedsit, without knowing anybody for two years on a speech by Juliet to get in drama school, and I was turned down by pretty much all of them. But then I did get into the Royal Shakespeare Company, so, you know, up yours. <laughs> and at that point, were you planning to be a professional actress? Yeah. And then I got on stage with Alan Rickman and Ian McKellen and Zoe Wanamaker, and they pointed out that I couldn't act. And imagine my surprise. In my mind, I remember somebody throwing a little ball of paper and it said on it, think about another career while I was acting. But I may be making that up. Oh, Juliet Stevenson was also on stage with me. She couldn't act either, I thought. But then, ha ha, the tables turned. She was just pretending she couldn't act, just to make me feel better. (laughs) Friends for life. But you were good enough to obviously get in. So clearly you had something going for you. I could play West Country Wenches because West Country sounds a little like American. And so I really cornered the market on the West Country wenches. That's all I could do though. Was it the intervention from your thespian friends and that led you to consider comedy or was it? No, it was Alan Rickman. He said, you can't act at all. He said, I would think about another career. This is while I was pretty much on stage. He said, you're really funny, write down how you think. So I wrote a play and he said it was like, Somebody had vomited 200 pages on him, but he's such a genius. He went through them and edited it, and we did the play at the RSC, and then it went to New York. And I said, Alan, I don't need you. I can direct it in New York, and he refused to come. So I got two actresses, and on day one, they were both weeping and threatened to quit. So Alan was sent over to take over. If we look at your comedy career, so I was wondering what particular, I suppose, you would see as your highlights. Girls on Top is clearly one that's often cited. I mentioned in the introduction how you also did script editing. Often we talk about women's comedy as something which gets less attention or struggles more, but do you feel like you were in kind of the boon time for it? No, I think we were like, besides Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers, who used to do self-deprecating humour, well, we did too, with Dawn and Jennifer and Tracy Allman, we made fun of women better than men could. And so they didn't know what to do with themselves. You know, once you're funny, everything is forgiven. You know, like that's why Jews can make jokes about Jews or, you know, nationality. So if we're making jokes about women and they're that good, then we broke the market. Now, you had your comedy, you had the sketches, but then we also had your interview series, Ruby Meets. And you also had a few documentaries. So... You've interviewed Madonna, you've interviewed Fergie. What do you think makes for a good interview? I think when everybody's taken by surprise, and that used to happen in my interviews because I could spend days with them. You know, I sometimes would move in with them. So a relationship formed, and then we edited it so you saw like an intimacy, which looked like I was being rude, but we'd actually by then be friends. But nobody can do that anymore because of PR. Nobody will give you three days of their life. You know, I don't know if I'd be that good if I had a half an hour. But I like the interviews because we could travel together. You watch them say things that they just figured out about themselves. And you did feel, you know, that it was mutual. I mean, I would break them down and we would become either girlfriends or boyfriends. Girlfriends and boyfriends. Looking back, were there any that you would have done differently? Oh, yeah. Donald Trump was a disaster because he scared me and he reminded me of my dad. So when I meet that type, I freeze like an animal in the headlights. 
And then I say stupid things because my dad used to think I was an idiot. And so I become an idiot. So if I had just shut up around Donald and been able to keep my cool, you know, and got the cortisol down, I could have just hung him by saying, because he told me he wanted to be president of the United States, and dumb, I started laughing. But I should have said, I think you should be president. Tell me some of, you know, your objectives. And just let him slowly hang himself. Instead, I became aggressive. It wasn't funny. He said to the pilot, get her off the plane after like 20 minutes. They landed the plane and threw me off. That's not a good interview. I did meet him at the end, though, and he did like me because when he gave me a lift in his car, I could, he was trying to shock me, but I could shock him back, and then he liked me. But it was too late. Nowadays, you're known most for your writing, and you've written several books, which we can go through. But I wonder first, why did you decide to move away from television? You know, I think I started losing my mojo, and then the PR agents started to get pretty um, powerful. And while I was doing people like Ben Stiller or Susan Sarandon, you could see them pointing to their watch, meaning you got a half an hour kid. I can't do those kind of interviews. I don't know. I, it's not interesting to me. I don't want to yabber about their latest film or whatever. I want to talk personal. So they became powerful and they protected their clients. So I couldn't do that anymore. And then I did a daytime chat show and I thought I died because that was hell. And I had to do a cooking bit and I don't care about cooking. And I had to, you know, be that kind of perky presenter and I'm not a perky presenter. So I had a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> not because I wasn't a perky presenter, but I had one anyway, and then thought I have to reinvent myself because this isn't making me happy. And that was really hard. You mentioned having a breakdown there in passing. One of the things you're most well known for is... My breakdowns. <laughs> mental health campaigner. Yes, okay, let's call it that. OBE to boot. So You swallowed that, Katie. OBE to boot. Okay. You know, I just had a panic that I'd misremembered and you might have an MBE and I was going to get in lots of trouble if I got it wrong. So I slightly coughed it. I didn't think that boded well for the future. <laughs> but yeah, you have an OBE to boot. I mentioned in the introduction when you first, I suppose, publicly spoke about your mental health and that poster where you also confessed to dandruff. I don't have dandruff, Katie. I don't know who wrote that. It's not funny. One in four people have mental illness, one in five people. And they didn't ask me. They put the poster up all the way to the tube stations. First of all, I don't have dandruff. So that was mortifying. Let's make that clear. So initially, I was going to ask, if of hindsight, that wouldn't have been how you chose to start talking about your mental health. No. I don't think I would have said anything. But now it's a poster. So I thought, okay, well, I better make a show out of it. Because when you have a show, they might think, oh, she's just kidding. Now everybody has a show about mental illness. You know, we got to find a new frontier. Cystitis hasn't been done. Anyway, I'll think about it. But yeah, I think that's why I came out. And also, I'd hit the end of my career. I got a degree in psychotherapy, but I was a lousy psychotherapist because, well, and I had to do it for 200 hours. I'd find myself going, yeah, 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 come on, get to the punchline. <laughs> I didn't say it, but I could feel myself getting frustrated. So I thought, I have to find another career. And Ed always said, my husband said, someday you're going to combine entertainment with the mind or what happens or neuroscience. And I thought he was just saying that to make me feel better and that's what happened. So when I went to Oxford and I got my degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which, and you also studied the brain, I wrote a dissertation, but then you have to do a practical and that was a play. 
I did it as a theater piece. And they filmed it, and that's how I got my master's. So that show, once I made it funny, er, I toured for 200 shows. And you had that show, you've also had several books, one Frazzled, which is not, and these books as well pointing out, they're not just for people who have mental health problems. It's also just people who have daily anxiety or concerns. Well, I don't agree with you. I think I did once do a play about mental illness and the rest of them were really a trip into who you are, you know, kind of internal journey. So, uh, you know, it's everybody. Everybody has a brain. So how can we say, you know, some people's brains are sick, but it's like Bill Bryson just wrote about the body. It's not a sick body. It's just a body. So I did give you a, you know, a journey as to things I certainly wanted to know. I can't remember in which book, but what is envy? Where does that come from? How does disgust happen? Where's FOMO happen? Is this normal? How do we choose the people we choose? What are thoughts made of and how come they're so mean? All those things I wanted to know. It's always about me. I wanted to know, and so I researched it. And then in the last book, How to Be Human, I got a monk and a neuroscientist on board. And, you know, it, I wrote the chapter, and it, I mean, I'm a comedy writer, except I'm accurate too, sometimes, unless I'm making a joke about not being accurate. And then at the end of each chapter, the monk and the neuroscientist, and they were big boys, you know, these aren't just off the shelf neuroscientist and monk, and they'd have a great conversation. And they were so funny and so accurate that we took How to Be Human on tour as a show, and they'd come on at the second half. And I turned a scientist into a really, a guy who knew where his light was. Do you think, you spoke about kind of how it's not just about mental health and actually it's just about how everyone's brains work and things. Do you think the conversation then around the whole topic has changed in recent years? You mentioned that it does seem a lot of people are talking about mental health nowadays. That's because people had to come out. So when I first started doing the show in the second half, and these are all three shows, this is Frazzled, How to Be Human and Save New World. In the second half, I always say to the audience, it's gonna be more of a dialogue So I may think in the beginning, I can't really remember, and they were smaller audiences, I think, that the audience would ask questions or they'd say what's going on in their minds. By the time I did How to Be Human, it was like a thousand seaters, and I had to eventually say we've run out of time because people want to be heard. They don't want to feel freakish. They want to know if their mother has it, if their kid has it, what to do. It was like a dam that was going to break, and it did break, and the laws are changing, not completely. And now, after this virus, get ready. You know what I mean? They better have enough metaphorical beds. That brings us to the final section of the podcast, which is the current situation we find ourselves in. And you touched on it there. How do you think coronavirus is going to change that conversation or just affect a large chunk of the population? Everybody's guessing. This is the first time humanity has faced the fact that we know nothing. And we never did. Life was not static. Everything changes. But, you know, the way our brains are, we don't see the tiny little movements. But when something cataclysmic happens, then we notice. But that's just the human brain. You know, you can't blame yourself. That's part of my book is it's not your condition, it's the human condition. But I, I, I do do my frazzle cafes and talk to 200 people a day. And not, they're not, again, mentally ill. Some people are, some people, you know, it's like saying some people have a limp on one leg. And so let's not distinguish. But there is going to be a big problem because isolation is going to kick off something. The ones who seem to be surviving the best are the ones with maybe a not heavy mental illness because they're used to being inside and they're used to feeling fear. And so one woman said, now, I, now the world's coming to me rather than me always having to come to the world. 
only because now we're doing a lot of Zooms and we care. There's, now we can find our tribe, well, those people who do this. But the people I don't speak to, there's going to be, this is going to be a pandemic of mental illness like they've never seen. And, and unemployment, what do you think that's going to do? It's going to be bad. Well, I don't even want to discuss it. There's enough bad news. I've written a new book called And Now for the Good News to the Future with Love, which comes out in September. And that took me two years. And I write about where the green shoots are then. For example, in business, there is something called conscious capitalism. You know, what is the alternatives in running businesses? Or how do we teach kids in school? So I went to Finland. That's more... um, you know, gets them ready for 20 years from now where all the, pretty much all the jobs now won't even exist. So these schools are getting these kids emotionally ready. And then I went new ways of building cities and towns where there's more community and technology. You know, what, what's going to work for us? Well, Zoom is now. And so I wrote this and that comes out. And even though we're in a disaster, those things will still be there. So even if there is a disaster, I know where I'm going. You know, there, I know the jobs I want, I know who I want to live with, and I know how I want to live. Because that, again, was the point of the book, is what do I want to do next? So I'm not that terrified, but I am terrified for the world, because you're going to have mental illness, is the second wave. You've dealt with quite a few political figures in your time, partly for your work on mental health. Are there any politicians you think have a particularly good grasp on mental health going forward? I think a lot of them have a mental health problem. And it's very hard to recognize because when your brain is ill, there's no other brain to make an assessment that you're ill. You know, you can see your leg is broken or that, you know, you're in pain because of your kidney. But when your brain goes down, you can't tell. You know, you can't be conscious of what you're not conscious of. So I think they are unenlightened, most of them, except 20 people in Parliament and the House of Lords have been doing a mindfulness course. Chris Ruen? Check it out. I mean, ask the people who have taken the course. And of course, in parliaments around the world, they're also taking the course. That gives people a chance to sort of observe what their reactions are. Let's not go airy-fairy. It really helps you focus, period, focus, and pay attention so you don't live like in constant whirlwind of narcissism. But they have a way of bringing down their fear levels and anxiety levels so they can hear clearly and make more sensible decisions. It's not a miracle cure. It just means that you can pull out of the fear factor for a few minutes. Now, you spoke on Question Time about a few things we could do in terms of while we are in isolation, improving things. One was when we do go outside for our daily exercise, we look at people or you have eye contact. Well, you've got a mask on. It's all you've got left. It's your, it's your final frontier. Have you got any other tips for, I suppose, general well-being during lockdown? Well, you know, Frazzle Cafe isn't a bad idea, and you go on frazzlecafe.org, but it's too bad businesses don't have this, where people could really check in and say, this is what's going on for me, and be honest about it, because to me, talking out loud is half the cure. You can see it's palatable when these people speak, and everybody's really listening. What calms them down is that the human race has a lot in common, if we're just honest. Instead of, you know, oh, I know of the statistic of how many people died in Venezuela. I don't want to hear that. I, I mean, you know, if I need to. But I want to hear what's going on in your day so I don't feel so isolated and freakish. So it's not just me. And people say, well, what if an older person doesn't have an Internet? Well, use the telephone. 
I think people are doing it right now with that clapping at Thursday. That's going in the right direction. And people delivering food. That's the goodness that's rising up. Just two final questions. When are you going to get married? And what are you wearing? (laughs) Very good questions. But unfortunately, you need to get your own podcast to ask those. So I'm going to stick with my my final two, um, which is the first is something I've asked a few people on the podcast so far. How do you de-stress? Emily Thornbury said that she relies on gin and cigarettes. You know, I like um, a martini probably as much as everybody else, but because I know how wild my mind is, which P.S. everybody's is, I mean, I not goody for me. I know I need to do mindfulness, and I have to do it. It's like going to the gym. You don't, I've said this before, you don't get a six-pack with one sit-up. If you just do it and pull the ripcord with the pair, if you're not ready for when the, you know, when the real stress comes in, you don't have the muscle. And mindfulness is working an area in your brain, which means that, when other people go into, you know, a whirlpool of uh, thoughts about rumination, I might not. I, you know, we all get stressed, but I don't think I get stressed about stress. I know those thoughts are um, just old recordings. So that's, that's what I do to cool my brains down. And then I'll have a martini. Perfect. Do you think that perhaps while we're all stuck in our home, it's, it's de-stressing in a way because we're thinking about fewer daily troubles? Oh, no, no, no. This is really up in the stress. It's, I can see that on Frazzled. People are, who aren't normally stressed are losing their minds with not knowing or feeling you know, that they're not doing enough and the shame and the terror and how's this going to end. Uncertainty is the human you know, enemy. It's always been. If we know there's a war coming, we can get ready. But this is invisible. Now, we always end the podcast by asking everyone this question, and which is just, we once asked people what the best advice had ever been given is, but then Lionel Shriver told me that was a boring question. So we now ask people, what's the worst advice they've ever been given? So what's the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, well, maybe my dad, who thought I was, you know, really useless, said I shouldn't go into comedy. <laughs> well, just as well you didn't listen. Thank you, Ruby, and thank you for listening. And if you would like to take part in a Frazzled Cafe discussion during lockdown, just go to frazzledcafe.org for details of how to sign up to stay connected. And while we have you here, if you have any feedback on this podcast or any of our other podcasts, do get in touch at podcast at spectator.co.uk.